0: Nothing puts a company's transfer pricing under the microscope quite like a legal case, and a high-profile one at that. The Danish Tax Authority recently snagged a win with the Danish Supreme Court against Tetra Pak Processing Systems AS, a producer and seller of ice cream production plants. On this episode of The Fiona Show, we're breaking the case down piece by piece, or in this case, scoop by scoop, to learn where Danish taxpayers should be homing in and how the tax authority plans to ramp up compliance measures. Joining us today is Cross-Border Solutions, Chief Economist Mimi Song, an International Corporate Income Tax Expert, and returning guest, Johan Muller. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Israel isn't wasting any time. Finance Minister Avigdor Lieberman announced that the country is signing on to the OECD's framework for taxation of the digital economy. The OECD plan will tax global companies on where their customers are located as opposed to their physical presence and enforce a global minimum tax. The news comes days before the scheduled OECD talks on June 30th, which shows an indisputable enthusiasm for getting the taxation ball rolling. Lieberman feels that, quote, the economy is becoming more and more global and we need to take policy steps in cooperation with other countries, unquote. If you're a taxpayer in Qatar, we've got good news. Qatar's general tax authority has pushed the submission deadline For master and local file from June 30th, 2021 to September 30th, procrastinators rejoice. The new deadline applies to companies with a January 1st, 2020 financial year start date or after. Qatar mandates that resident entities and permanent establishments submit a local and master file if they meet the following criteria, having either total turnover or total assets over 50 million Qatari Rial, that's 13.6 million U.S. dollars, in the financial year and conducting related party transactions across national lines. Taxpayers are also required to submit a transfer pricing disclosure form, which is due at the same time as the annual corporate income tax return. Amazon hasn't been the only multinational battling a recent state aid case. Angie, the French utilities company, is having similar troubles, although the two MEs saw very different outcomes. This case centered around an intragroup financing structure that Luxembourg signed off on. It provided an effective tax rate of 0.3% for close to 10 years. This action raised flags for the European Commission, can you blame them, and took Angie to court in 2018. The utility company appealed the ruling, which led them to where they are now. In the most recent decision, the EU general court supported the European Commission's claim that Angie received unlawful state aid from Luxembourg and slapped them with 120 million euros, that's $142 million in back taxes. So does Angie have the energy to appeal the judgment? Only time will tell. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross Border Solutions weekly transfer pricing podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Welcome back, everyone. We're here today with chief economist here at Cross Border Mimi Song and international corporate income tax expert Johan Muller to discuss the Danish tax authority and its recent win in the Danish Supreme Court against Tetra Pak Processing Systems AS. And for the substance of this conversation, I'm actually going to hand things off to Mimi for this one. Mimi, you have the floor.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Johan. We're excited to have you back on the show. Hopefully you are.
2: It's nice to be back. (laughs) Hopefully you're
1: you're ready for this episode. Well, thank you so much. You know, when we last spoke, I I know we talked a little bit about the pandemic and the impacts, but I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. What are you most looking forward to about the potential for the world opening back up?
2: You know, uh, simple things. I mean, just like sitting in a coffee shop, and watching life go by—that—that is—I I never realized how much I would miss that. Restaurants <laughs> and stuff like that is fine, but but, but just—I—I I, I love just going to take my laptop with me, sit in a Starbucks or anything equivalent, and just watch people. You know, that really enjoying that. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. That the people watching—that's true. You know, Mm -hmm. I haven't stepped foot in a mall or anything to watch the people, but it's always (laughs) fascinating to see the characters, right? Exactly.
2: Exactly. It's it's good. I mean, you don't have to talk necessarily to anyone, but it's just it's good to be among people, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It
1: is. And as a professor, you're you're constantly surrounded by new information. What's something you recently learned about transfer pricing that perhaps you found fascinating or or made you stop and and reflect?
2: I guess it's to to never expect that you know something. Uh, Recently, we were teaching some or had a class with some students in South America, and we were talking about allocation of profits to PEs and stuff like that. And, And to me, it was a pretty obvious question to say, why do we need PEs, as in, the introduction to, well, if you exceed a certain threshold, then you want to tax them. And then obviously then the question is to how much. But the response basically bowled me over. And the response was, well, who needs PEs? This particular country is completely, it was Colombia, is, is completely source tax-based. And to them, I mean, having PEs is just, it's a nuisance. For the taxpayer, it's nice. It means you get taxed on a net income basis instead of a gross income basis. But but seeing from the tax authority's point of view, it's like, yeah, who needs a PE, you know? should <laughs> well, never assume that you know the answer that's coming. It's a, you can always get a curveball.
1: That's amazing, like right, challenging right. the the sort of status quo, if you will. And and you exactly. need those fresh young minds to really give you that perspective again, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, I'd say the the other one is a little more international, DAX and TP, But what I was discussing with another class recently, the old Vodafone case in India, mm-hmm. and you know, if you, if you think about Vodafone at that time, where they, where where you had this this U.S. company that sold the Mauritius company to a, to a U.K. company and in India said, we're going to tax the gain. And the whole world thought they were crazy. If you look at how accepted that point of view is today, because the only thing the Indian government did was to simply look through and say there's nothing in the Mauritius company except Indian assets and very valuable Indian assets. We've come a long way in, in not that long a period of time in, in accepting that kind of substance over form approach when looking at holding company activities. I thought that was quite interesting as well.
1: That is fascinating. And over the course of your career, have you seen a prevalence or an increase in the amount of transfer pricing audits?
2: Absolutely. And cases? Absolutely. But that has to do with being a little ancient, right? I mean, I started my tax practice in 1989, 1989. And, and I mean, in those wow. days, no one, at least in Europe, have even heard about transfer pricing. I mean, the transfer pricing guidelines at that time was, I think was about 80 pages. It was a 79 version that we were looking at and, and I think there was something on banking, but but nothing special, right? Today you're looking at, at the current transfer pricing guidelines of so 600 and something pages. If you Look at what's been added since BEPS, which need to get into the 17 guidelines. It's probably going to be 700 and something pages. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you look at that time, maybe there were five countries that that, that had transfer price documentation requirements. And nowadays, it is yeah. everywhere. And I think the big thing is that, that tax authorities have also realized if you do a case on PEs or you do a case on tax residents, I mean, these are binary questions. Yes, it's, it's yes or no you win everything or you lose everything. Whereas with transfer pricing, you can always win a bit. So, so it's also, it's more risk-free, right? You can put a lot of resources into a case and still come out with at least break even. So I, I think also from that point of view, I, I've seen some statistics over the years, but I never could find found the real source to it where they show dollar for dollar, the return on investment in terms of effort that the tax authorities get from cases like residence and stuff like that versus transfer pricing and transfer pricing is just seven eightfold the 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 return on investment so it will continue to grow yeah
1: yeah well with that being said i mean today we're going to talk about a, a pretty interesting case in and of itself so in april 2021 the danish supreme court announced its ruling on a landmark case And they won against Tetra Pak processing systems, right, where they essentially stated that Tetra Pak underestimated taxable income for the fiscal years 2005 through 2009. Can you give us a little bit of background on this case? What was at the crux?
2: It's funny, sometimes when you revisit cases, you see them a little different. A couple of months ago, I I put up a video about Tetra Pakken, and it was very much focused at that time on, first of all, translating from the Danish to the English to to, to get the facts right, and talking about the Dean transactions and stuff like that. But, But I think the crux here was that the Danish authorities really wanted to have an idea of what the system profit was for the Danish entity and the group company that manufactured the machines and, and the distributors, especially in South America, that sold the machines. And it couldn't get that system profit. And, and the reason why was because the, the distributors in South America had too many other activities that they, that they were performing. The ice cream machine unit that the Danish entity was was selling was a very small part of the total Pak turnover. I think it was something between five and 10%. And, and then the Danish entity itself represented 2% of the t- Tetra Pak turnover. It was not very high on the radar, but it also meant that you couldn't see what the system profit was because you didn't know what, what part of the, the, the distributors' profits were allocated to this ice cream machine business. And, and, and two things happened there. The, the first is that, that Tetra Pak said, we just know from industry knowledge that their return should be 7%, and that's what we benchmarked them at. Mm, mm-hmm. There's no benchmarks that we made. This industry knowledge, we know our business, and, and that's not necessarily a very satisfactory answer, right? Even though the guidelines don't say that you must always go for databases. But the second issue, and that was probably where everything went wrong, is TetraPark is very closely held, it's still a family business, and it's highly secretive. And they went all the way through the Danish tax authorities and the lower courts all the way to the Danish Supreme Court. And when they said, tell us how much the distributors made, Tetra Pak said, sorry, that's a secret we can't tell you. And I think there was a very visceral reaction at all levels through the Danish system to this, sorry, we won't tell you what it is. More than anything, they probably lost the case on that.
1: The lack of information or the lack of sharing information or the, the secretive nature of their distribution returns, right?
2: exactly because if you if you read the case you're going to really see this case has been extremely adversarial when the tax authority is saying you have not done a comparability analysis, which is, I mean, if you haven't done a comparability analysis, you've done nothing, right? Whereas if you look mm-hmm. at Ted, or what Tetra says and their lawyers say, they said you came time and time again and you asked for questions and we gave you what you wanted. You asked us to do a new TP documentation. We made new TP documentation with benchmark studies and stuff like that. You asked for meetings, we met with you, we, we told you everything we know. You know, you asked us for 100 things, we gave you 99. How can you right. say that we haven't given you anything? No, that, 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 <laughs> yep. is, that is the issue. But on the other hand, I mean, in the defense of the Danish authorities, I mean, if if you do not know the system profit, you know nothing, right? You, right. you, you can right. say that you are the principal in a particular division of, of a group, and you can be very clear about, about the manufacturers. But if you're not clear about the distributors, you don't know whether the losses are real Or whether they are somehow they are profits export because you need to have the full size to know what the residual size is.
1: And I think that the Danish tax authority's findings ultimately increased Tetra's income, well the income that's taxable in Denmark, by more than 57 million dollars, right? And this was based on this concept of the tax authority's discretionary estimated assessment. Now for the listeners, clearly who may not be familiar with this, what is this discretionary estimated assessment and, and how did they come up with this?
2: Okay, so there's a particular Danish angle to this. I, I think in a lot of countries, even even the U.S. for that matter, you know, if, if the taxpayer's documentation is not right and, and you cannot see what the taxable income is, you can make an estimate of what the taxable income would have been. Right? There is a problem with that. I mean, typically it varies by country, but uh, but the taxpayer gets the first shot. It can make the documentation. And then in a lot of countries, it's for the tax authorities to prove that the prices that were used were wrong. And uh, so they have the burden of proof on that. If they can say that the documentation is not proper or you didn't answer all the questions or anything like that, and they have to therefore make an estimate, it does two things. I mean, they, they need to be reasonable, With that estimate but no one says that they can't go to the high end of being reasonable the second thing is if you as a taxpayer don't agree with their estimate you have to the burden of proof has now reversed and you need to prove that the price that they have set is unreasonable and not at arm's length the danish tax authorities go for that argument almost by default they would ask a lot of questions in tp audits and if they feel they don't get all the answers they would go to the argument very quickly. You don't give us the information. Therefore, we can make an estimate. Therefore, we've reversed the burden of proof. And now it's your problem, not ours anymore. You've seen this in a number of other Danish cases where they've tried the same, but they've never been successful totally in this line of argument. But I think here, and, and, and we talked about this before, but I, mean, I think here the fact that Tetra Pak, even before the courts, said that some things are secret and we can't tell you, flipped the coin and said, okay, now the court said, yes, you're right, and they took it to the extreme because they didn't say you didn't tell us the one thing out of 100 that we've asked for, they said, you have not given us a comparability analysis. Right. Maybe, you know, maybe without an insight into the system profit, I think it goes a bit far, but but there is an argument to be made with, the, with that without an insight into a system profit, you don't know whether the principal is making profits or making losses. It might be different if the Danish company here was a low risk service provider, either manufacturer or distributor, because then you don't need the system profit. But if you are the one that's supposed to get the residual, as I said before, you need to know what what the whole package is. And that was their frustration here. And saying no to the answers to the questions of the court is probably what killed the deal for them.
1: Right. Well, let's set the stage here a little bit and then just take one quick step back because when we talk about the Tetra Pak danish entity so they were actually a producer and seller of the ice cream products you know when when i think of Tetra Pak, i actually think of just the packaging but but they're actually manufacturing and, and selling ice cream related products right
2: machines and then they're machines. selling
1: it oh machines i'm sorry machines and yeah. so then they are selling it to their distributors i think their position or their transfer pricing policy was once again, sticking the finger in the air to say, "Hey, we believe that this is an arm's length. You know, we know in the market this yeah. is what other companies 7%, would charge yeah. for. Yeah. Yes, seven yeah. exactly. percent for for selling these types of products. Yeah, and so they had no evidence to support that, and therefore." the Danish tax authority estimated, right? I mean, they still didn't have the data related to the distribution they, returns, right?
2: No, you, you're totally right. You're totally right. There were two things that they did. So first of all, is this argument, you know, of uh, we can now make the estimate. But then the question was, how do you make the estimate? Now, now if you go by transfer pricing theory, you'll, you, you'll try and find the simplest party. And, and arguably here, it was the distributors that were the simplest party, not, not the Tetra principle in Denmark. But what the Danish tax authorities said is, you know, because you won't tell us the numbers of the Tetra Pak distributors, I mean, you don't tell us how much of of the profit that they made comes from third party sales, how much of it comes from other group company sales, and how much of it comes from our ice cream machines. Just a quick step to to the ice cream machines. Well, Well, what Tetra Pak made in this particular case was they made machines which ice cream sellers could use to package their ice creams in and to sell it to their markets, right? So so it wasn't the ice cream wrapper itself in in this particular case. They would, for instance, sell their machines to any labor who would then use those machines to package Magnum or whatever else into the air pocket bags. But because they didn't know what the distributors were making, they said, we are forced to benchmark the principle and we will simply look at companies which we think are comparable to what uh, the principal should have made. They ended up with, a, I think, with the TNMM on sales. It, uh, it was around six, seven percent. And they did find comparables. But part of the taxpayers' complaints were, you know, the comparables that you found are not comparables. You're comparing us to nuclear production companies. And, and there were one or two other ones which, were, which sounded very weird and in Mm -hmm. the lower courts the courts actually did take out one of the comparable companies which reduced the assessment in danish kronos terms from i think 352 or 358 million kronos to to around 324 million kronos and there's about six kronos to a dollar somewhere between six and seven kronos to a dollar right but that is the way the case went so that they could make a pro forma assessment they couldn't they couldn't benchmark the distributors so so they ended up benchmarking the principal and the taxpayer said these are not comparable companies, but the arguments went strong enough for the courts to reject that.
1: Right. Well, they didn't really have any support to begin with. And so even if they brought no. it to the table, I think that the lack of sufficient documentation was a challenge. I mean, based on this that we know now the Danish Tax Agency actually enacted a new law in April 2021 that yeah. now allows the tax authority to use this discretionary assessment if the transfer pricing documentation is not prepared in time too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What does this imply about now the Danish Tax Authority's position and its exercise of power over these sorts of assessments and adjustments, transfer pricing adjustments?
2: I think it's not gonna stop them from trying to go for the pro forma adjustments, right? That they've had a success now, quite a big one. So we might see this come back more often. And and what happened was the Danish rules, has always been that you must have your documentation done by the time you file your tax return. But now they've made a rule for tax year starting in 2021, so it will apply in 2022, which says that you must file your TP documentation with your tax return, right? So you not only should have it ready uh, within 90 days upon request. No, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're supposed to have it ready when you file the tax return and you now also have to find it. So we can see that you've got it. And that's gonna open a whole new dynamic for, for, for taxpayers um, in, in terms of really getting their documentation ready on time and filed with the authorities because if it's not filed, they can say that it's not prepared and they can go perform an assessment.
1: Right. Well, in theory, I mean, even without requiring the taxpayer to file it, Denmark always had contemporaneous documentation requirements over the past few years, and they even penalized for lack of contemporaneous documentation, right? Exactly. But I feel exactly. like this added another layer of complexity. They're basically saying now, We don't trust that you're actually doing it.
2: (laughs) So now you've got to file it. Yeah.
1: Now you've got to file it.
2: (laughs) Yes, you're right. It always had to be contemporaneous. And the way that it was interpreted as being contemporaneous was that it had to be done by the time you filed your tax return. But there was something else which could help taxpayers. And that is, you know, that when they said contemporaneous, they really meant contemporaneous also in terms of your databases used. So, if, for instance, let's talk about the year twenty transactions, right? And and when at the time when you prepared your documentation, the database years that were available were seventeen to nineteen, and if they then ask you in twenty three. To hand in the documentation under the old rules, not, not, not the new ones where you have to hand in automatically. If they asked you to hand in in 23 and gave you the 90 days, they could expect from you in those 90 days to go and look at your old benchmarks and update them and so that your benchmarks reflect the 18 to 20 years instead of 17 to 90. And if necessary, that could have proven that you fell out of the, the, the range if those numbers move significantly. So for them contemporaneously also meant, you know, that, that even after you've done the transaction and after you filed your tax return, if you have later data about the years for which you benchmark that are more accurate, you should actually use those data to test your transactions to make sure you're okay, which is going quite far. Yeah. But that will not be possible anymore under the new rules because now you filed it.
1: Now you have to file, exactly. And I think that this whole idea of that discretionary assessment and, and sort of being able to do that if a taxpayer doesn't have its documentation though, right? Does the addition of the filing requirement change the Danish tax authority's ability to apply these discretionary assessments now or?
2: No, it broadens the scope, right? In the sense that if you haven't filed it, they can say that you haven't had it and therefore... They can go and make the discretionary uh, assessment.
1: Do you think that taxpayers would then, you know, deliberately not file their documentation, or just perhaps forget? Because all of a sudden, to your point. That creates a red flag for audit, right?
2: But why would you want an audit? I mean, I, I think they definitely right. would, you know, they, they definitely yes. would file on time. <laughs> it's also so difficult to, if you look at, for instance, the, the the Echo case, also a Danish case from not too long ago, right, where the taxpayer won. I mean, one of the things that the, that the Danish authorities tried to do, there was impute a royalty transaction onto the structure. They, in the end, they gave up and they didn't succeed in doing that. You can also, without being paranoid, think, okay, they might impute some transactions on me. And if I haven't documented it, does that then mean that they can go and make a discretionary estimate of, of what the income would be? And how far does that stretch? I mean, I guess time will tell. Time will tell how, yeah. how that will work. And there is also a lot of uncertainty in terms of Transfer pricing documentation. I mean, it's still not one hundred percent clear whether you should document charge through costs or not. And if you haven't, and they think you should have, even does it mean that they've got a discretion about that? Would that influence, especially if you're a principal in the structure, would that influence your overall, your overall profit Stuff like that. I, I think there is still a lot of unclarity that will come up. So just maybe one last point to make here, and that is that there's, there's two issues what we need to be aware of and, and, and take care of in Denmark. The one is this, more than I've seen other countries, the, the urge to go to the discretion assessment, saying, we asked and asked and asked, and you gave us 99 out of what we asked, but not 100, and, and therefore we can do the discretion assessment. The other thing that I think the Danish authorities are using as a tool, and they're not the only ones, is, is they do try and move companies into a position where typically they would play with who the tested party is. They would, for instance, imagine you have a structure where you have a U.S. company with an an Irish entity in between selling to a Danish entity and the Danish entity distributes in Denmark. They could, for instance, play with the the argument saying, you know what, the Irish party in this structure is the simplest party, therefore it should be the tested party. And then they would look at the Irish-Danish profit and say, which means the rest comes to us. Right In, in Tetra Park, they kind of did the, they did the opposite. And here they said, you know what, since we don't know what the distributors are and Tetra was loss making, we will make them the tested party. The tested party on a TNMM basically always makes a profit. Therefore, they should have made a profit here, right? right. But the argument normally goes the other way. They, they, they try to play the ball of the tested party outside of Denmark so that the residual in that transaction between those two parties can come to Denmark.
1: Well, in some ways, whatever is going to give the more favorable result, right? This uh, idea of a discretionary assessment. and yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, again, the discretionary assessment has to be, I mean, it has to be reasonable, but no one says what side of reasonable. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp.
1: So when we boil it down, right, the Dutcher Pack versus the Danish tax authority case It is really based on the fact that the tax authority felt as if Tetra Pak was not being transparent about the information. They did not prepare comparability analysis. They calculated the significant discretionary assessment of over 57 million U.S. dollar equivalent. Right. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court and really the Danish tax authority has won in this case because of this lack of transfer pricing documentation and comparability analysis, really that, that burn of proof shifted from the tax authorities to the taxpayer. And I anticipate, you know, to your point, that we're going to be seeing more discretionary assessments applied going forward, especially in light of this new legislation that has passed, right? So what does this case, Specifically tell us about the value of having robust documentation and and more importantly, the value of this shifting in the burden of proof.
2: Two comments. The one is I want to make clear that I haven't seen the Tetraback documentation. But I think they had a comparability analysis in there. Right? But the argument from the tax authorities was, yeah, but that wasn't a comparability analysis because you lacked this crucial information on, on the distributors, right? You You said that it's industry knowledge that they made 7% and that is not correct. And you couldn't tell us what the system profit was that that, that's my take on the case. I mean, had Tetra Pak done that, They probably would have not said that there wasn't a comparability analysis, but the argument was, you know, without the system profit, there is no comparability analysis, basically. No matter whether you looked at the five comparability factors, no matter whether you have made the functions as a risk analysis, you know, no matter that you've done all those steps, still what was missing is so essential that there is basically nothing. I think Mm -hmm. going forward, the best thing for taxpayers to do is the documentation must be robust. And there's this issue of the pre and post BEPS documentation. You see a lot of post BEPS documentation where you get the feeling that not necessarily the taxpayer, but maybe the taxpayer or at least the advisors have done is They've taken the pre BEPS documentation, compared it to to, to Annex 1 and Annex 2 of of Chapter 5 of the list of things that need to be done. And, and simply filled in what they thought was missing, which makes it extremely difficult to check all the boxes of whether you indeed have everything. I mean, a lot of files that I see that when you check them, there are a couple of things missing. And there are sometimes very silly little things. I mean, it, it, it's something stupid like, why haven't you explained why you've used the multi-year analysis. You haven't told where the group management of the local entity, who they report to and in which country and what their position is. You haven't explained whether there's been any changes in the transactions last year compared to this year, right? All of those things in Annex 2, but it's not necessarily in the file. And, and I think taxpayers need to make sure that they that they make their files, that their files are complete and that all those boxes are checked. And not that you, that you miss some of those boxes just because you, you simply use an old file format still. Does, does that answer your question?
1: Of course. And, and you know, it's silly things to your point. Like when you think about even identifying and articulating existing APAs or tax rulings, something, even if you don't have any, just acknowledging it and saying we don't have any just so that, yeah. you know, you can actually check off that box.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, very often that. it's one or two sentences. It's, it's, it's not pages and pages of writing. No, exactly. But I would say you really need to make sure that that you can show that your files are complete and obviously that they are on time. And
1: given your perspective on the Tetra Pak comparability analysis, I know what you were indicating before is that you haven't seen the documentation. I don't think any of us have. But at the same time, the Danish Tax Authority clearly took a position that they did not have a robust comparability analysis. So. What does this case illuminate about the importance of a comparability analysis or what kind of strategies can you offer for our listeners about Mm. ensuring that you have a successful comparability analysis?
2: I think that the clear takeaway from Tetra Pak is if you have a Danish principle, you must be prepared to give insight into what the system profit is. That I think is, is the biggest because again, you know, if you've got a low risk service provider, not giving the full picture does not matter that much unless obviously they, they, they try and go for some kind of profit split method or something. But these are one-sided analyses and, and, and you've got the simple test to it. But when you are dealing with the principle, I mean, you need to have the full picture on, on what the full profit has been. One of the Tetra Pak arguments was that if the Danish entity had to make this 320 million kroners in profits the low risk distributors taking care of the solution actually would be in a loss making position. But of course, I mean, that's very, I mean, how do you know that, right? If, if, if you tell us, you can't tell us what the system profit is, how do you know that the distributors are not going to be in a loss making position? It also adds to the frustration, right? I think in any country, it is probably not a clever idea to tell judges that you can't give them the answer because it's confidential. It's not going to work. I mean,
1: and you've had experience as a case handler for the Danish Transfer Pricing yeah. Competent Authority. So, how have you seen the Danish Competent Authority increase their compliance initiatives over the years? And and this type of case clearly, I think, highlights that they've they've done a good job overall, right?
2: Yeah, I think there's two things that you see at the moment. I mean, clearly, countries need money, and you look at a number of countries. The tax authorities are hiring an incredible amount of people especially in transfer pricing that is the one thing the other one is you know in the trainings that i do i i do it for students but i also do it for law firms and and, and, and accounting firms especially the ones that there are boutique firms and i do it for governments and i'm really surprised at how often you talk to a government about training, and they like we don't need it. The OECD is taking care of this. Uh, behind the scenes, it seems like there is a huge outreach everywhere to get tax authorities technically much more up to speed on taxation in general, but certainly to pricing in, in particular, in making sure that competency levels are raised. And Denmark is no exception in that.
1: No, I, I was going to say, I think we were able to research a little bit that the Danish tax authority has actually been able to collect over 80 billion Danish krona in recent years because of this enhanced enforcement. They, I think it's pretty significant.
2: That is a huge amount, that is a huge amount. I don't know where you have this number from, or whether this is simply in their total adjustments or whether these are adjustments that they, that they want in the MAP procedures or something like that, I, I, I don't know. But, but I mean, they are aggressive in making their adjustments, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I think that there are some proposals to incorporate something called a tax evasion alarm center and then even employ over a thousand new employees over the next four years. So clearly, that's these new
2: hires. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yes. There's a lot of initiatives coming into action. Clearly, an investment in the workforce and yeah. stricter transfer pricing rules, deadlines, requirements. And clearly, this Tetra Pak case, I think, does drive home the importance of this documentation, especially now that it all has to be filed as well, right, with the right level of comparability analysis. And so we know the tax authorities are, are looking and they really want more information. Now, you had mentioned earlier, there have been other cases in Denmark. ECHO, you mentioned, there's also, yeah. there have been Microsoft, Microsoft ADECO. Yeah. Do you think that the Tetra Pak win will ultimately bolster the tax authorities confidence and, and perhaps even change their mindset approach to future audits?
2: I uh, obviously it will bolster their confidence. Absolutely. But I do think Tetra Pak is, is special in the sense that it was a principle in a structure, you know, and it was special because it, it, it so bluntly refused to give some information.
1: Right. Lack of cooperation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it it was not that they did not cooperate. I mean, especially if you read the lower court decisions. they bent over backwards to meet the tax authorities in in, in everything that they've requested. You know, but it it literally does come down to this. We've given you 90 percent of 99 of what you've asked. We didn't we didn't give you that one thing that you needed. And that's why we came down with we didn't have a comparability study at all. They have given him pages and pages and pages of information but there was one essential thing that the the Danish authorities wanted that they didn't give them so from that point of view i mean the case will be special it's not as though the case reverses microsoft or reverses echo or anything like that it is a special case but it is a win for them so they will try again of course of course they will of course they will yeah
1: and so, what do you think the future of tax compliance looks like in Denmark? They've clearly applied new initiatives. That, I mean, do you think they're done, or <laughs> do you anticipate more?
2: I'm not sure what more they they could be doing, right? I mean, if you have to file your documentation with your transfer pricing, you know, remember there are already a couple of things in the Danish system which which are not part of the local file master file in, in the sense that. They've got everything that you have in the master file local file that, that you need required. And that's just standard. And I hope that no country wants to go and add on a lot to that because then we just get back to where we were pre-BEPS. But they do have in the tax returns, they have, for instance, schedules that you need to fill in about all your intercompany transactions with who the counterparty is and what the size of the transaction has been. Up to date, the, the size of the transaction are ranges. Which, which really helps because it, it means that you don't have to have the exact number. It, you know, if you come to simple recharges, it can be a huge amount of work to find out what the exact amount is. The range reduces the level of compliance on that a lot. I don't know if they will narrow that down, those ranges, but I don't see compliance-wise much more that they could be doing than what they are doing already in, the, in this regard.
1: Right. They're already pretty rigorous in terms of the requirements. I I would say probably the most rigid standards I've seen.
2: What maybe they could do is is to force more taxpayers into cooperative compliance, that kind of thing, so that you have even more of a real-time issue. But quite frankly, you know, be- between the DAC6 rules that we have in the EU, where, where you have to report all potentially aggressive transactions already, and filing your TP documentation with your tax return, I, I don't know how much more real-time you want.
1: Right, unless they just put a tax agent within each company in Denmark, right? <laughs> <laughs> put them on the staff, right?
2: <laughs> oh, I If they came to any company where I worked, I would ask them to help me find the stuff that I sometimes can't find myself. I mean, that's, <laughs> that is totally fine. They could do that. Then
1: they would understand the pain, right? Exactly,
2: so, exactly, well, yeah, yeah.
1: I would ask, you know, as, as a final question or, or really comment, it's what advice do you have for multinationals trying to navigate this compliance landscape in, in Denmark?
2: Don't make losses. No. <laughs> it's, it's, no, at least this is the way the authorities work. When, when, when I was there. I grew up in an environment in Holland where the Dutch authorities tried to audit every taxpayer at least once every five years. So so they had an idea. In Denmark, the audit subjects are much more project driven. I mean, they might decide mm-hmm. to look at a certain sector and then take all the companies in that. And if, if you're in that sector, that's just the way it is. But the other red flag is definitely making losses. If you make losses three years in a row, you're you you you're more or less guaranteed an audit.
1: And a discretionary assessment, right? So.
2: <laughs> Exactly. I think the kind of stuff where you really want to be careful is is you see sometimes companies starting up businesses in in Denmark. They make two or three years of losses and they argue that this is because these companies are fully-fledged distributors or whatever. And then in order to mitigate their risk, they turn those fully-fledged distributors into low-risk distributors. But that in itself is a problem if you don't compensate them for the losses that they've made in the past, or at least make their margin so high that they have a realistic chance of recuperating those losses, right? So so one right. also would probably need to consider the full picture. Just again, from, from a pure third party point perspective as well. I mean, if you are truly making startup losses, you're never going to allow yourself to sell your business into a low-risk routine return after that was, oh, now I never have to worry, but I also will never get my losses back. Just when you are at the point where clearly the numbers show that you are going in the direction of becoming profitable.
1: Wow. I think that's sound advice for any company operating in Denmark. And clearly the Danish Tax Authority has had an increasingly sensitive focus on transfer pricing related issues and, and clearly new compliance initiatives. We, we do anticipate more taxpayer challenges in the future now that they have this Tetra Pak case as a win for the Danish tax authorities, right? And it's up to multinationals to properly insulate themselves from this increased scrutiny with robust documentation that now has to be filed. You have to have a thorough and thoughtful analysis and make sure it's contemporaneous or make sure it's meeting all the deadlines and submission requirements at this point. So clearly a difficult landscape to navigate. But, you know, Johan, we really appreciate your perspective here. I think this has been fantastic. I know I am going to be cognizant of any operations that we might open in Denmark in the future. So <laughs> now we know <laughs> what to expect.
2: <laughs> that's good that, Maybe that's we good avoid to it for yeah. now. <laughs> and, and, and again, you know, I mean, Denmark is a small country within Europe, a small economy. You know, it, it, if you put stuff here, of the cases, it is going to be some kind of service provider. So it is going to be low risk. You know, whether it's a distributor or or whether it's manufacturer is more likely a distributor. Just don't make losses.
1: Don't make losses. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, because if you argue that they are low risk then they have to be would be the, the point of view from from the dangerous authorities and if you do make losses they will come and order and they will argue that you never should have made the losses and they will adjust you and if they can find anything wrong with your documentation they will say we can do it pro forma and if you don't like our adjustment prove us wrong yeah yeah
1: Well, you heard it here, everybody. Don't make losses in Denmark. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Johan. I really appreciate that.
0: A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it Welcome back everyone. Now comes for my favorite part of the show, a segment we like to call the rapid fire round. Just some personal questions. Sometimes they go into transfer pricing, but it's a little bit more about our guest and our guest of course today is Johan and always question 1, Johan is are you ready? I am. Excellent. Question 2, what's something that's always made you laugh out loud?
2: You know, I love I love Facebook memes. <laughs> i love uh, the the, the stupider they are the better and oh they, agreed they, you know, absolutely that's my fun for the day really.
0: yeah all muppet level humor is is tops for me anything that makes me go you expected me to laugh at that i will anyway that's I, that's, yeah, that's that's yeah, my level it's of what humor. my
2: daughter called dad humor right yeah and, uh, yeah i
0: guess I guess is, that, that probably reflects yeah. <laughs> some paternal instincts on my end. What is your yeah. proudest career accomplishment?
2: I, I would say the times I was at the OECD. Indeed. You know, either representing business through TEI, the Tax Executive Institute, where we were very much in the beginning of the OECD opening up and hearing other business parties besides BIEC. we We were one of the first there. But also being there as a member of the Danish Competent Authority, I mean, it, I, I, I've always been fascinated by the dynamics of how it all works. And it's really been great to be a part of that. I, I really enjoyed
0: that. 100%. What advice do you have for someone starting their career in transfer pricing?
2: Think logically and be focused on facts. To me, I, I see too many people, and I've been guilty of it myself my younger years. You're not certain about things you think you don't know, and you pretend to know when you don't. If you have the confidence to believe that when things do not make sense, they do not make sense, you will go, you will go very far.
0: One hundred percent. And finally, what is something you think should be taught in school that isn't?
2: Now I'm going to sound very cynical, but, uh, but I think thinking itself we need to rely much more on our own judgment and, and much more on our own thought process. So things like, you know, doing the thing, if it does make sense, it does make sense. What we, we, we need to trust that, but, but but you've got to be curious. You've got to go for the facts. and You've got to be able to see the whole picture for yourself. And, and if you don't know, then, then, then we need to be taught to ask to say, I don't know. And not just agree with someone because they are an authority or something like that, if they can't explain it to you in a way that you can't understand, then maybe there's something wrong with the way they explain it. It's not necessarily something the way that that's wrong with understanding. So I think we need to be far more reliant on our own common sense in schools and learn to develop
0: that. Well, as the MC Socrates once famously said, when you know you don't know something, you're truly all-knowing. Or, as the great philosopher <laughs> Biggie Small said, if you don't know, now you know.
2: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Johan, for joining us on today's Fiona show. We want to thank Mimi Song for joining us as well. Also, everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. There you'll find Crossborder's entire suite of tax podcasts. This podcast is hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. As we've been saying for a couple weeks now, stay safe everybody, get vaccinated and we'll see each other very soon. Until then, we'll catch you next week.